The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the Word of God. We thank you for what it teaches us. How clear it is, how powerful, how right, O Lord, how satisfying, uh, how rich and full it is, O Lord. And, you know, it's a remarkable thing, really, in the doctrine of heaven or the doctrine of the bodily resurrection from the dead, the doctrine that there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, the doctrine that Jesus is better as a king than we can possibly imagine, that just because we want something to be so doesn't mean it isn't so. And, and, you know, it's just amazing, Lord. The things we want the most are the things that are definitely going to happen. And, uh, Lord, the unbeliever says, you know, you're just projecting your desires and thinking because you want it, it's going to happen. Well, it's going to happen whether I want it or not, but I do want it, and it is going to happen. And I praise you for that. I pray that we'd feed our hope tonight. pray that we'd walk out of this room more filled with hope and joy than we've experienced in days. Father, I pray that we'd have a sense of your great love for us, a sense of the great purpose of God in creation and the goodness. And Lord, there's some negative work to be done here, Lord, some deconstructing work. We were to take axes and other powerful weapons and chop down these faulty constructs of the devil. Father, I pray that we do it with great courage, knowing that locked up behind those satanic constructs are lost people who need to be set free by the gospel. So help us to do that tonight. Be with me as I teach and all of us as we just listen and learn in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there was some unfinished business from last week. We were talking about uh, evolution and specifically the concept of theistic evolution and um, just how inconsistent the idea of evolution is with some key biblical doctrines. So that's the unfinished work. I put it on one sheet, and so let's just go through these kinds of things that I believe theologically are inconsistent with the idea of even guided or theistic evolution. They just don't fit. Uh, right away, the idea of man in the image of God, okay? The special creation of man, the way that in the Genesis account, man is created unique and different than anything else in the physical universe. And it has to do with this idea of the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I'm not going to go into great depths tonight on what it means to be in the image of God, but so many things come from it. And I think foundationally to the whole story of the Bible is that human beings have a spiritual component to their essence that enables us to relate to God to understand God, to love God, to trust in God. These things are part of our makeup. We are told that we have this treasure, spiritual treasure, in jars of clay. There is somehow a binding together of the physical and the spiritual in the creation of man. How in the world we uh, you know, unify that with, with evolution? I don't see how that works. I mean, seriously, even if you could imagine you know, that man evolved from apes but that God kind of oversaw that process, clearly he left some apes behind, okay? Only some of them got evolved because we do have apes around, don't we? 
And so he must have just zeroed in on a certain population of apes and kind of made them the image of God. I don't really know how that works. It doesn't seem consistent. It doesn't fit. All right. Secondly, the doctrine of the unity of the human race. The unity of the human race. Acts 17 and 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Again, the idea of natural selection, the idea of evolution, these kinds of things have to do with populations, genetics, natural selection has to do with genetics. You have population densities and all this kind of thing. Very impersonal. But the Bible clearly reveals that the entire human race descended uh, from, from one man, uh, Adam. And frankly, we know that that actually happened twice because the whole human race also descended from Noah and from his wife as well. And so that's relevant when we talk about, about genetics and race, so to speak. Um, but the fundamental idea here is that you have one man and his wife responsible for every human being on the face of the earth. Again, how do you fit that together with, with evolution? I don't see how that works. Again, with that, you're dealing with populations, right? You're, you've got all of these simian-like creatures crawling all over the face of the earth, swinging from trees and all that. And some of them become Neanderthals or something like that. See what I'm talking about? It just doesn't fit. I don't know how you line that up with the story of Adam and Eve. It, it doesn't line up. It doesn't fit. And so you kind of have to give up on these doctrinal concepts, the unity, the genetic unity of the human race, which is really fundamental to fighting racism and to our future around the throne of grace and, and the, you know, the fact that the gospel witness can go equally successfully all over the world, that we have an obligation to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, to the human race. This is the unifying factor. Well, I don't know how it fits with this whole population and natural selection approach and all of this. I, don't, I can't make it work. I must admit I'm not trying too hard to make it work, but I'm just telling you as I think about it, I don't see how it fits together. You really have to have one or the other. Thirdly, how about the doctrine of original sin? Again, the doctrine of original sin. The idea is that in one man, the entire human race sinned. Okay, you know the story. Genesis chapter 3, Adam is in the garden. In Genesis 2, he is told, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay? Uh, is it an insignificant thing, this, this linking of sin and death? Is this a theological sideshow? Friends, it's the central story of redemptive history, how sin entered the world and how God dealt with it. And Romans chapter 5 clearly teaches that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. You may not like that. You may not think it's fair, but it's true. <laughs> God ascribes or reckons or credits the sin of Adam to you if you're a human being. So every single baby that's born all over the face of the earth, we are descendants of Adam and we're seen by God to be sinners. We sinned in Adam. The infants, they sinned in Adam because they're human. It's clearly taught in, in Romans 5. And we get from Adam two things. Again, I'm not going to go into great depth on original sin here, but we get from Adam two things, a position and a nature. A position and a nature. Position before God, sinner, condemned, death penalty. You get that, okay? You also get a bent or a twisted bent, a tendency towards sin. When you uh, understand the law of God, sin springs to life and we die as soon as the little child understands right from wrong. 
Shortly thereafter, they do wrong, okay? <laughs> and we've seen it again and again. If you've seen children grow up, you know precisely what I'm talking about, you know? So the bottom line is this is what the Bible has taught. But it's not only that. Not only the doctrine of original sin, but the parallel in Romans 5 between one Adam and Christ, the second Adam. Through one man, death entered the world, so also through one man, salvation, righteousness enters the world. How do you fit that together with evolution? Again, you have to picture it in your mind. How did it work? I, I, my, my enemy tonight, my, my ideological enemy is theistic evolution, not atheistic evolution. I'm going after Christians that are trying to harmonize evolution with the Bible. And I'm telling you, it can't be done. It can't be done. It's just something that doesn't fit. And so there is a direct parallel here between Adam and Christ in both in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. The, the first Adam, the second Adam. Okay, again, visualize it, picture it, okay? What's going on? Millions and millions of years. Millions and millions of years, right? Evolution up from all of these kind of things. We'll get into the ordering of it, you know, as in due time. But, you know, getting to ever more complex beings until you have, you know, your invertebrates and then your vertebrates and your, you know, the, the you know, reptiles and the mammals. And, you know, you eventually get to the simians. You get to, uh, you know, apes. And then you get to... Uh, human beings. Uh, who's the one man? Which one? <laughs> Which one was Adam? Which Neanderthal was Adam? Which, there he is, right? I mean, who, who is he? It's a population growth thing. It's a numerical blind. It's really hard for evolution to get away from its blind, atheistic, naturalistic bent. You really just can't see God kind of orchestrating that where God's like, here's my Adam. This Neanderthal right here, he's the Adam that I've been waiting for. What? I mean, how does it even fit? It doesn't line up with the biblical story. It's just an entirely different explanation of how we came here. It's not biblical. So for me, I think that those things do not fit. All right. Jesus is the second Adam because there was a first Adam. First Adam, second Adam. You see that there's a parallel there. Uh, and it's not accidental. God knew that this would happen. Same thing with the origin of death. Death came through one man. Okay. Sin entered the world through one man. Death came through one man as well. Okay, what does that mean? How do you fit that with evolution? It doesn't fit. I mean, think about it. Again, we're dealing with millions and millions of years. Those are not millions and millions of years of eternal apes, right? That's millions and millions. That's multi-generations of apes that did what when they reached the end of their useful time on Earth? What happened to them? Well, they died, right? Didn't they die, those apes? They died, one after the other. How do we explain that? How do you explain that? It says here, death entered the world. It's like, well, maybe that's just the death of human beings. Fine, granted. Let's say that it's only talking about the death of human beings. Who's a human being? I have no idea when human beings started. Do we have to wait for the uh, anthropologist to come and tell us when the first human being was and when death entered that pool, that genetic pool of human beings? It doesn't line up. The Bible says sin entered the world through one man. I just can't harmonize these two accounts. You really have to choose. Bible or evolution. You just can't put it, you know. And, and you know, there may be other, other ways. You can tell me, we can talk about gap theories and Genesis 1 and all that kind of stuff, millions of years. We can do all that. But when it comes to the human story, it just doesn't fit. Can't make it work. Okay? And then there's marriage. Okay? Marriage. Uh, Jesus, remember, on asked on divorce, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, 
and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's Jesus' view of the origin of marriage. And in Jesus' view, if you want to understand marriage today, you have to understand God's original purpose in marriage as recorded in the book of Genesis, right? Again, let's go to the, the theistic evolution explanation. Where did marriage come from in the theistic evolution? How do you figure marriage out? Again, you've got a bunch of apes swinging from trees. At some point, you've got some Neanderthals. You know, I, I, look, I don't want to go into ridiculous caricatures here, but you always picture the guy like dragging his wife by the hair kind of thing. <laughs> You know, I, you know, I, maybe they're polygamists. I don't know what's going on. I, it's just a mess. And, and how does marriage come in? You know, one man, one woman for life, that whole thing that's clearly established in Genesis. How does that come in? It's just not there. So biblical view of marriage is founded on the Genesis story. I would say the Genesis account because the implication of the word story is it's not true. It's a myth or something like that. It's the, it's the account of what happened. Again, marriage, the biblical view of marriage. Uh, and then male leadership. In the New Testament, the, the doctrine of male leadership in the home and in the church, though it be not popular, it's still true. Frankly, I think it should be very popular, as any biblical truth should be popular among Christians. It's good, solid, healthy food. And I can testify that in this church, it's produced nothing but good results. It's produced godly men who are standing up and leading in the home and in the church, and the church getting healthier and healthier. Women as well. It's a biblical truth. I can confess that as we went through difficulties on this issue at this church, I wish that this doctrine weren't here. I wish it were locked in a lockbox. I was tired of suffering on its behalf. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord convicted me that I was ashamed of a portion of biblical doctrine. How dare I ever be ashamed of anything in the Bible? But here's the deal. The doctrine of male leadership is rooted in the Genesis account. And this is the hardest of all of them to line up with evolution. It's the hardest. You can't line it up, okay? Let's take, for example, that passage in 1 Timothy 2. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent. Why? Why, Paul? For Adam was formed what? First, then what? Eve. Okay, now let's go to the theistic evolution explanation of stuff. What in the world does that mean? There were only males running around for millions of years, and then suddenly there was... There were, I mean, how does that even happen? There had to be females in the population. Lots of them, right? They had to kind of evolve together or else you are extinct, friend, like the shakers. You're out. You're done. You're finished. Okay, you've got to have procreation. You've got to have mating, so they call it. All right? So this just doesn't line up at all. There's no good reason to believe in male leadership or headship whatsoever if the biblical account isn't literally true. Was there a time that Adam was alone without a wife? Did God mean anything at all when he said it's not good for the man to be alone? How do you fit that word alone in with theistic evolution? In what sense is he alone? He's surrounded by a bunch of Neanderthals or almost Neanderthals as the evolutionary process comes. He's 100% Neanderthal. They're 99%, so he's a little bit better. He's the king of the Neanderthals. But there's got to be some wife somewhere. The story just doesn't line up. I'm really having a hard time even just teaching like this because I can't really even get my mind around it. What then would motivate Christians to even try to do this? That's a real good question, isn't it? Why would Christians try to harmonize evolution and the scriptures? What reason would, would we give? Why would they even try? No. Flynn, why do, why do Christians try to harmonize these two things? Uh, because it does better reconcile what science tells us about origins with the Bible. 
Okay, so if you didn't have the pressure coming from science, would there be this effort to reconcile them? Just within the Bible world, we say, something's not working here. We need to go get help. No, it's all coming from the outside in, right? So we basically, as Christians, want to make some people happy. We want to make some outsiders happy, and we want to try to see if there's some way we can make them happy. And so we start to pitch some things and accommodate some things and rearrange some things and whatever, and you end up without doctrinal, these doctrinal pinnings. Man in the uh, image of God, the unity of the human race, original sin, the origin of death. Original sin in the parallel with Christ, by the way, how he has come to be our new Adam and our new righteousness, right? You're going to get rid of marriage, the biblical basis of marriage, and male leadership in the home and in the church. Are you willing to trade all that so you can... So you can have evolution, which I'm about to try to destroy for the rest of the evening. I mean, scientifically destroy, to show that it's just bad science, not just bad theology. This is the bad theology portion of our presentation. Evolution is bad theology. The rest of the evening is going to be our bad science portion, okay? Uh, it is bad science and it's bad theology. Though we are laughed to scorn, I tell you, there will come a day that that laughter will end, okay? It will, it will, there will be nothing funny on Judgment Day, when God says, finally, the word of God was perfect, flawless, Psalm 12 and verse 6, like silver refined seven times in a furnace, flawless. And God will uphold his word because he says he upholds or exalts above all things his name and his word. Is not God zealous to uphold the perfection of his word? And so in the end, there's no laughter on that day. It's our job as evangelists to help them get serious about these things while there's still time. Because it's not a joke. And if they mock us, just understand, bear in mind, they mock Jesus, Jesus first. Any questions about how evolution is bad theology? You can't reconcile evolution with specifically anthropology and things focused around human, human things. Questions about that? Comments? Yeah, Margo. Yeah, it's very intimidating, especially at those museums. The artwork is great, isn't it? I mean, it's really imaginative. I mean, let's be honest. What are they working with? Aren't they working with skeletons? I mean, that's what's left in the... Isn't that what's left in the, with the fossils? They're working with, with the uh, skeletal structure. How did they get the color of the lizard skins? I mean, where did that come from? The pigmentation, I mean. Well, you get a good artist and there, off you go. It's imagination of the mind. You know, I, bottom line is there's an awful lot of misinformation that goes on. It's very intimidating, you know, um, and the mockery that comes. We talked about that last time, but, Margo, that's a very good point. Any other questions or comments about how evolution's bad theology? What would you do if you met somebody in this church or whatever that believed the Bible's the word of God, et cetera, but sought to harmonize these two, theistic evolution, et cetera? How, how, what would you say? Go talk to me, all right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Send them my way. Fine. Fair, fair enough. Get, get the tape, you know, that kind of thing. All right, tell you what, let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about how evolution's bad science now, okay? Not just bad theology, but bad science.
Okay? I am not saying there's not a lot of evidence that tends toward evolution. I'm not saying that. Okay? But what I want to show you is that there are also some pretty significant difficulties with it, too, from a scientific point of view. Okay? If you want to know, if I can do this from memory, it boils down to three, you know, the three silver bullets that, in particular, I think they have a hard time explaining. If you want to know just quickly what they are, the fossil record, subpoint of that, the unbelievably embarrassing lack of transitional states, not just in terms of human evolution, but all things evolved. And so there should be transitional states everywhere. Told you, you should not be able to drive home tonight because of transitional states. They're stacked up in 15501 and you just can't get past them. So you have to get a 4x4 four four or a helicopter to get over the transitional states. That's how many of them there should be. But anyway, let's move on. Transitional states, the fossil record problem. Number two, irreducible complexity. What does that mean? The fact that, that for something to live and function, it all has to be there. And if it's not all there, it's not alive and functioning. And irreducible complexity works at a couple of levels. Um, there's just different parts that all have to be working in you or you're not alive. And so all of those things have to kind of evolve up together, so to speak, which I don't see how that can happen. Or within an organ like an eyeball or something like that, uh, or a wing of a bird, 90% of the wing or 90% of the eye is no advantage to the species and therefore should not be naturally selected up to become 91% and then 92% over hundreds of thousands of years. It's no advantage to have a wing that doesn't work. See what I'm saying? It just doesn't... So these creatures who can't fly yet are dragging wings around that actually make it harder to survive. Natural selection will tell you every evolution, every step of evolution has to help the species survive. That's what survival of the fittest or natural selection works. It's a gene pool statistic thing that they just do a little better than all the others and then eventually that's all there is and everything else is lost in the the competition of of food and survival of the fittest. That's how it works. Well, how, how do you then get a wing go, going all the way up until finally it works? Because nothing could fly at the beginning, and then after millions and millions of years, then you've got different, I think, four different types of flying that goes on. Insect flying, feathered bird flying, uh, leather wing flying that comes from like rodents, like flying squirrels, and there's one other, I forget, bats. Uh, those are four different ways of flying. All of those got evolved up, so to speak. Um, and all of them at one point didn't exist. None of them existed. So all of them had to evolve up, see what I'm getting at, and had to step by step by step by step by step be an advantage to the species until finally they could fly, and that was a big advantage. That makes no sense to me. None. Irreducible complexity. And third and the best of all, where in the world did the first living cell come from? Nobody knows. Nobody can even figure out a scenario where you go from non-life to life in an instant, okay? Cell wall, ability to reproduce, ability to, to eat and to excrete, to respire, and to uh, pass on the genetic information of all the things it's learned through evolution to its son, okay, the next cell, because it ain't living long. So it needs to be able to pass that on to the next cell. And all of that has to get figured out, as far as I'm concerned, in an instant, because a moment ago it wasn't alive, and now suddenly it is. Where in the world did that first cell come from? Please find a biologist at Duke or Harvard or whatever. They'll tell you where the first cell came from. You know what they're going to tell you? I have no idea, but it did. Proof of that is we're all here. That, dear friends, is faith. That's religion is what it is. 
I have no idea where that first cell came from. No one knows. But I know it did, and we all evolved from that point on. So those are your three best of all, and you have to go through 18 pages of listening to me talk to get at those three things, okay? But those are the things right there. The fossil record, irreducible complexity, and the uh, um, first living cell. Okay, well, let's, tar- let's just start with a definition of evolution. What do we... What do we mean by it? I'm not, I decided not to give you a historical account of Darwin and what happened in his life spiritually, why he came up with this sort of stuff. That would be interesting enough. I've done it at other times. I'm not doing it tonight. Needless to say, I tell you it was a spiritual issue for him to come up with an alternative to creation and to Christianity. He was, he was needing something to come up with. All right, but we won't, we won't go there. We don't need to get into that. I just, you know, we just have to see that, that he rejected the truth. All right, so what do we mean by evolution? First, microevolution and macroevolution, those are the two, the two different kinds of um, evolution there are. Microevolution are changes within a species based on adaptation to surrounding circumstances or selective breeding. That's microevolution, so it's just the changes. Examples abound. Dog breeding, horticultural development, such as increasing sugar content in the sugar beet. Navel oranges, those are great. I mean, navel oranges are so cool because they're the end of the line. There's no seeds in them, right? Aren't they? That's cool. I mean, that really should be evolved out, right? Because they can't reproduce. But I love them because they don't have to spit out seeds. That's, that's great. Don't you guys love navel oranges? I just love them. But that's breeding is what it is. You, they just breed them and they graft them and they work until there's no seeds and, and they have everything they want in the orange. But they're starting with oranges and they're just working with the genetic complexity of the orange seed until they have just precisely what they want in the orange. Okay, Um, and then peppered moths changing color and all that. Okay, also very much so biblically, we have so-called races of human beings. Uh, Thabiti Anuabile rejects the word races. He says there's one race, the human race. Um, But clearly, I think there are widely different physical characteristics. And yet, as we've already said tonight, they all came from one set of parents. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. By the way, if that verse is true, then all the genetic information for Asians, Africans, Europeans, etc., were in Adam, in his sperm, I guess, including varieties in skin color, eye shape, hair color and texture, uh, height, etc. You know, and, and, and that's the kind of thing. It's, it's interesting. It's always fascinating to me, families with lots of kids, okay? And sometimes all the kids look kind of identical, even though they have, you know, stair step. And other times the families are just, the children are very different from one another physically. I find that fascinating, you know? And for me, I'm too close to my own kids. It's like, oh, she looks just like Christy or he looks just like you. Or, I, don't, I can't see it. They look like who they are to me. But outsiders can see those similarities. And there's some similarities, but there are differences too. I'm talking between parents and children. And between brother and brother or sister and sister and all that. You can even get the same thing with twins. You know, if they're with a maternal twins or whatever. They, you know, they're just both born at the same time, same father, same mother, and, then, and yet they're different. I think Jacob and Esau are probably like that in that they, they didn't look identical. I think Esau looked different than Jacob did, you know, et cetera. They clearly had that problem later on where Jacob had to kind of fake out the hairy skin thing to lie to his blind father, one of the like low moments in redemptive history ever. Um, but clearly, they were very physically different from one another. But I, I'm just saying, within one man, really, focusing on the father at this point, Adam, you have all of this potential. And I think, you know, I, 
the thing is, these ideas would have seemed far more preposterous a hundred years ago than they do now because we know more about the human genome and, and the amazing variety there is within the DNA and all that sort of stuff. It really isn't that shocking. Neither is the idea that a woman could be made out of one portion of a, of a man. I mean, that's where the whole you know, Jurassic Park thing came from. What did they have? The blood sucked by some mosquito inside a chunk of amber and they get, they get whole dinosaurs out of that. You remember you saw that ridiculous movie? I mean, but you know, back in the Scopes monkey trial days, it was laughable that a whole woman could come out of a rib. A rib is more than enough to get a cloned something or other, whatever. I'm just saying science has moved to the point where some of this stuff isn't seeming so ridiculous anymore. It's actually kind of making more sense, lo and behold. But it happened twice. It happened with Adam and it happened with Noah. And so all of this genetic variety we get, you know, from the basic unity of the human race. Okay? And that's an example, I think, of microevolution. The Bible also speaks of localized tribes of people having certain genetic tendencies. For example, height, Deuteronomy 2. That, too, is considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. So they were noteworthy for their height. Again, Isaiah 18 talks about the people of Cush, uh, people tall and smooth-skinned. All right, so there's clearly a, a genetic difference, so that's noteworthy. This is something God is saying. God says they're distinguished by these physical features. Now, racism says there's something spiritually defective about people with these physical characteristics. That's wickedness. That's something Christians should reject out of hand. That if you have these physical characteristics, you are spiritually defective or at a spiritual disadvantage. You're rejected or whatever. That's wickedness. And frankly, I think true biblical exegesis and understanding of these concepts is a powerful tool for fighting racism. You know? Whereas evolution, I think, leads and breeds to racism and Nazism and Arianism and all that, survival of the fittest mentality. Those two are just married together. I think that the 20th century, you really see the fruit of evolutionary thought with, whole, with racism and you know, the Nazis and all that kind of thing, superior, superior race, etc. So that's microevolution. I believe that happens all the time. And so don't get duped by that one. You know, when they start talking about you know, moths that change colors and, and all this sort of stuff, that's nothing. That's just the complexity of the gene. But when you have a moth breeding with a Doberman, now there's something, all right? If you can ever see that going on, then if that could ever happen, then I, that's the changing of species, that kind of thing. That will not happen in your lifetime, ever, actually. All right, what is macroevolution? Well, there we go. Evolutionists say in the broadest sense, evolution is merely change. That's wrong, okay? Don't, don't buy that. And so is all pervasive. Galaxies, languages, and political systems all evolve. Biological e evolution is a change in the properties of populations of organisms that organisms, sorry, that transcend the lifetime of a single individual. The ontogeny of an individual is not considered evolution. Individual organisms do not evolve. The changes in populations that are considered evolutionary are those that are inheritable via the genetic material from one generation to the next. Biological evolution may be slight or substantial. Again, this is a blended kind of discussion here. It's to their advantage to make no strong distinction between micro and macro evolution. They, because there is no example of macro evolution. Ever. There never has been. What there is, is are there examples of micro evolution? What they say is that there's no examples of macro evolution because there just isn't time. It just happens so slowly. And so, we, of course, we're not going to see it in something as short as a human lifetime. This is taking billions of years 
That's what they're saying. So they, they want evolution's any change in a population through genetically inheritable type things, etc. That's what they're saying. Um, successful alterations that led from the earliest proto-organism to snails, bee, bees, giraffes, and dandelions. So basically that there is some kind of evolutionary trail from the first living microorganisms up, you know, like you've seen the thing, it looks like a like an oak tree or something, and it's just coming up and then just branches off into all the variety we see now. That's it. The idea that all of that came down to a tree trunk, to a single thing, eventually to those cells and up, that's evolution. It's the idea that all species are united. The way we just said that all human beings are united, they're saying that all living species are united in that way and evolved uh, originally from the from the am, the uh, amino acids and the, the, the warm pond of slime or whatever it is you want to say. All came from that. All right, it is important. And by the way, it's, it's like uh, it has to do with, um, with species, okay? Identifiable species. You identify them generally by reproduction, the ability to reproduce, all right? That's, you put a wall around that, that's a species, like dog or cat or something like that. They're saying that they are in, intrinsically related by ancestors. That's, that's what we would deny, okay? That there's been a difference in the species from the beginning. Uh, another definition is important to note that biological evolution refers to populations and not to individuals, and that the changes must be passed on to the next generation. In practice, this means that evolution is a process that results in heritable changes in a population spread over many generations. Uh, another uh, statement, in fact, evolution can be precisely defined as any change in the frequency of alleles within a gene pool from one generation to the next. This is pretty technical, but basically what it's saying is some little quirk happens genetically that produces a result that is favorable to that species surviving, and that quirk can be passed on to its own children and grandchildren and grandchildren, and so the population the pool changes over time and then that rises up and becomes dominant, that genetic trait. That's, that's natural selection. That's how they think it works. Okay? Uh, that's definition by biologists. Look at creation is how they define it. Evolution is the view that non-living substance gave rise to the first living material which subsequently reproduced and diversified to produce all extinct and extant organisms. I think that's a good definition. Okay? Uh, the framework behind the evolutionist interpretation is naturalism. It is assumed that things made themselves, that no divine intervention has happened, and that God has not revealed to us knowledge about the past. Evolution is a deduction from this assumption, and it is essentially the idea that things made themselves. It includes these unproven ideas. Nothing gave rise to something at an allegedly Big Bang. Non-living matter gave rise to life. Single-celled organisms gave rise to many-celled organisms. Invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates. Ape-like creatures gave rise to man. Non-intelligent and amoral matter gave rise to intelligence and morality. Man's yearnings gave rise to religion, etc. That's, that's the whole worldview of evolution right there. Uh, another statement, evolution is the supposed increase in complexity achieved when a given plant or animal evolves into a higher, more complex kind of organism. By the way, not every atheist says that something came from nothing. They actually don't have any idea. And some people like Carl Sagan said the cosmos has always been here. 
You say it's God, I say it's the cosmos. You say that God had no beginning, I say the cosmos had no beginning. How are we to refute it? Uh, Really, frankly, apart from the Bible, we can't refute it. No one has any idea. There's no way scientifically to even look at it. He just says the cosmos is all there ever has been, is, or will be. That's his naturalism. Okay. Um, At any rate... Key differences in definition then. Number one, the role of naturalism, the concept that nature is all there is and that species evolve by mere laws of nature, not by guiding intelligence. So that's it, that, you know, it's just laws of nature. And then number two, by the way, I love it when you talk about nature, okay, naturalism and nature, they're kind of the same, but nature is the friendlier, happier way or even worse, mother nature. Um, But, you know, these kinds of things... You know, it's just natural laws is what it is. But I love it when they give us something like what nature intended. Doesn't that make you laugh? I mean, just pause on that phrase. What nature intended. What does it mean to intend? To think. What do you intend to do after this class is over? Huh? I I didn't hear you. Okay, it has to do with a plan. What's your plan, right? And intend... Intent has to do with the plan. Nature doesn't intend anything. God intends things. So if you just want to go to an earth goddess religion and just be honest and be done with it and say what Gaia intended or something like that, just acknowledge you've taken a step back to Greek polytheism and just embrace that. But if you're going to just do this nature intended thing, that's just kind of humorous. I don't know how nature can intend anything. I think that's just more examples of the fact that there is a clear intentionality in creation and they just can't get away from it. It's everywhere. There's purpose in everything. And it's a beautiful thing, but nature doesn't do any intending. Anyway, the role of naturalism. And then secondly, increasing complexity. Evolution is a theory which explains how complex life can exist apart from a guiding intelligence. Therefore, there's not much sense in talking about decreasing complexity as evolution. All right? Evolution has to do with how we explain the opposite. How did we get like this? How did we get so complex? You know, evolution's the answer. So they're not interested in how things devolve. I mean, you don't have to work too hard to see how things devolve. Just look at some roadkill, you know, and you've watched it devolving. All right, it was at one point a complex squirrel, and then after a while, it ain't much. You know, it's gone. So it has been, it is degenerated. Um, so they're always wanting to say, no, no, I want to know how something goes from simple to more complicated. And that's quite a question, isn't it? It's what I call the inverted house of cards in a windstorm. We'll get to that in a minute, okay? But how it goes from simple to a little more complex to a little more complex against all the laws of nature, I find that very interesting. All right, let's talk about the religion of evolution. Actually, Will Burkhart and I were just having a conversation a minute ago, right before we began, and we were pressing in on this this whole... You know, uh, what is it? Proteins, amino acids becoming proteins. That I always get it wrong. Is that it? So left-handed amino acids are biologically uh, active, and the, and the right-handed ones aren't. That's how it works. So left-handed active, right-hand aren't. And what is left-handed? What is right-handed? Talk to Will. He's got a little chemical molecule description of it. He will blow you away. Just go look at the picture and, hey, there it is. And you'll say, yeah, it makes it the carbon and all that sort of stuff. If you want, other than that, just go home and do whatever you intend to do after this lecture, right? That's what you should do. But there are left-handed and there are right-handed, whatever. What a scientist will say, we know that if there's any right-handed uh, amino acids, acids, the thing is not biologically active. If, they're in, if, if it's not a pure left-handed kind of filtered out group of... Um, 
amino acids. It doesn't, it doesn't become anything biologically. It's not biologically active. And in one lecture I heard, the only place on earth that 100% pure left-handed amino acids exists is in laboratories run by human beings. Never out in nature. Out in nature, they're 50-50, just mingled in and nothing happens. God did that, dear friends, to point toward intentionality. All right, when we ask, how then did they all get all by themselves and start becoming active and forming up? They will say they don't know, but clearly it happened. That's where this is a religion, friends. That's where it's blind faith. That's where I don't know, but it happened. You're going you're to see evolutionists saying that all the time. I don't know, but it happened. I don't need to have all the answers. They talk to us about the God of the gaps. Basically, where we don't know, we just say God did it. They do the exact same thing. Where they don't know, they just say, I don't know, science did it. We don't know how. If we have more time, we will find out how all those left-handed you know, amino acids got by themselves and started becoming biologically active. We have no idea how it happened, but it clearly did. It's a religion, dear friends, and that's my next major point. We're dealing with two competing worldviews. This is truly a clash of worldviews. Listen to this statement. And this is huge. This is vital. It's like if you have a highlighter, highlight the top of page three. I just think this is a vital statement. I've never forgotten it after I first heard it. Creation and evolution together exhaust the logical possibilities for the existence of the universe. That's it. You've got two options. You pay your money, you make your choice. You either have creation by an intelligent being or you have blind naturalistic evolution. Those are the two things you have. Even theistic evolution really is creation by an intelligent being, though I think it's untenable theologically. So bottom line is you can see now why there's a, such a fierce motive for this to be true, a fierce motive, because the alternative is you're facing a creator God. I, I share the gospel, God, man, Christ response. I start with God, the creator, who made all things. Therefore, God, the king, who rules over what he made. Therefore, God, the lawgiver, who has the right to rule his kingdom as he chooses. Therefore, God, the judge, who gets to assess whether we obeyed his laws. They know that too. Creator, king, lawgiver, judge. They just goes right down like that. And so therefore, when you say we have two options for how we got here, creation and evolution, you can see why there's a moral motive to be going toward, uh, I think it was Darwin's evolution, or Darwin's motive to go toward evolution. We need something else. We need some other explanation of how we all got here. Therefore, this is a struggle of two totally incompatible worldviews. An evolutionist admits evolution is a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proven logically coherent by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. Well, there's a nice, honest statement. All right? (laughs) It's not because there's any evidence, but I just can't stand the alternative. I mean, that's really what's what's going on here. Just the idea that when I die, I'm going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God and give him an account for my life. I don't want that. I'd rather be told my life is meaningless and it really doesn't matter how I live. And then I'll just go with Ben Franklin and his moralistic aphorisms to have the best possible, most productive, happiest life here on earth and then who cares what happens to me after I die. That's their reason for morality because it works and it's helpful and beneficial. That's what they'll say. They'll not say that if, if you have evolution, there's no reason for any morals. They say, That's ridiculous. The best kind of life is a moral life. So societies have figured that out and we have codified morality. And so that's the best, highest most enjoyable form of life. It still doesn't mean anything. When you die, you're nothing. You become worm food and you disappear. You no longer exist. 
So those are your two options. And again, the guy says it's not because there's any like overpowering scientific evidence. It's just because the alternative is something I can't accept. He said incredible, meaning he can't believe it. I would say equally you could put the word in unacceptable. I will not accept that, the concept of a God who has the right to judge me. Scientists are not as unbiased and truth-seeking as they purport. That is true. Neither are we, dear friends, but they're not either. At this point, it is necessary to reveal a little inside information about how scientists work, something the textbooks don't usually tell you. The fact is that scientists are not really as objective and dispassionate in their work as they would like you to think. Most scientists first get their ideas about how the world works, not through rigorously logical processes, but through hunches and wild, wild guesses. As individuals, they often come to believe something to be true long before they assemble hard evidence that will convince somebody else that it is. Motivated by faith in his own ideas and a desire for acceptance by his peers, a scientist will labor for years, knowing in his heart that his theory is correct, but devising experiment after experiment whose results he hopes will support his position. Ouch. And, and you mix in Nobel Prizes and, and governmental grants and professional achievements and accolades. How do you think a guy like that, whose theory carried the day in his field, I'm not even talking about evolution now, just any scientific thing. His theory, theory was the linchpin theory until it was superseded by some other guy's theory. How do you think he's going to feel, how objective scientifically is he about the other guy's theory? Not very. He's going to fight against it. We've seen it happen again and again. You know, and yes, there could be some people that they'll say, look, I just want the truth scientifically. I just want the truth. But the, the bottom line is that people are not generally at that point seeking the truth. Their pride is involved. They've published. They've done speaking tours. They've written books. And now everything they've, they've taught has been superseded by some better theory. They're not thrilled about it. So all I'm saying is let's not stand there daunted by the scientists and so impressed by what they, you know, by this pure truth, this system, this perfect crystal cathedral of truth that's just getting built, perfect brick by perfect, that's just not the truth. That's not the way science works. Now, we shouldn't go so far the opposite direction and say that, therefore, Newton's laws of motion or F equals MA or any of this isn't true, or calculus doesn't work. That's not true either. So they're clearly finding some things that are true more and more as time goes on because God created an orderly universe. So those things, I'm not saying like every scientist starts from scratch when he goes freshman year at MIT. It's like, we don't know, well, let's find out. And then they discover the wheel and they go on from there. That doesn't happen. Most of the stuff in the textbooks is going to work for as long as they live. You know, and I'm not saying that. There is a system of true naturalistic truth that's, uh, that's derived here. I'm just saying that on this particular one in particular, there's a lot of human factors that come in. Therefore, many scientists have implicit biases against creation in the Genesis account. Okay? Uh, this uh, statement is very powerful. He said, We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment... A commitment to materialism. So occasionally just thank God for the honest pagan. 
Okay, we have a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation, a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So they will never say God did it. They can't accept it. They're not embracing theistic evolution, not at all. They, there must be a natural explanation for everything because there can be no God at all. That's really what you're looking at there. And so what they're saying is, look, along the way, the journey's pretty bumpy. When they talk about just-so stories, I don't, have you ever read Rudyard Kipling's, you know, how the, how the leopard got its spots and all that kind of stuff? It's a joke. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. And you read it, and it's just, you know, some of them are just really bad, some of those just-so stories. I was reading Rudyard Kipling's just-so stories about three months ago and resolved never to read them to my children again because they're just bad, all right? But, you know, basically the idea is what this guy is saying, that's about how bad science can be from time to time. But we've got to have it because we're committed to materialism. Materialism, by the way, isn't like loving to go to the mall every chance you get and buy a bunch of stuff. That's not it. It's a version of it. But basically it's that the material world is all there is. The physical material world is all there is. There is no God. There's no such thing as, as the spirit world, angels and demons and an invisible God who sits on a throne. That's a myth. That's a construct of our brains as we try to understand the phenomenon around us. That's materialism. Okay? Clearly contrary to biblical faith. Science is fundamentally a game, said another man. It is a game with one overriding and defining rule. Rule number one, let us see how far and to what extent we can explain the behavior of the physical and material universe in terms of purely physical and material causes without invoking the supernatural. By the way, where then does that leave Jesus' miracles? Okay, the Red Sea crossing, you ever heard that one? It was really the Sea of Reeds, the big marsh. Isn't that awesome? That's one of my favorite ones how Pharaoh's army all died face down in a puddle, you know? <laughs> it's got to be the stupidest soldiers in history, you know? <laughs> get up, get up, shake it off, you're all right. No, no, I must die here, face down in a puddle. You know, it's ridiculous. I think it's the most spectacular miracle there ever was. I really do. I think the miracle of Lazarus shows Jesus' power, but all you get there is a man coming out of a cave, Okay. Red Sea crossing, you get a sea being held back by some invisible force walling up to the right and the left and two million people walking through overnight on dry ground. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? How in the world do you explain that? You say it's a sea of reeds, a marsh that they found a way to get through and, the, and Pharaoh couldn't? I mean, it's ridiculous. Anyway, science then is dealing with observable facts in the present and refutable theories. Science, scientific method has four steps. Number one, obs observation and description of a phenomenon or group of phenomena. Number two, formulation of a hypothesis to explain the phenomena. In physics, the hypothesis often takes the form of a, a causal, sorry, causal mechanism or mathematical relation. Three, the use of the hypothesis to predict the existence of other phenomena or to predict quantitatively the results of new observations. And fourth, performance of experimental tests of the predictions by several independent experimenters and properly performed experiments. That's science. There's nothing wrong with that. Scientific procedure, that's what we do. God wants us to do those four things. But notice the limitations. What can't that do? Well, it can't go back in time. All right? It, it can't. There's nothing, there's nothing that that can do about history. We'll talk about that in due time. But, you know, bottom line, there's just limitations to 
the uh, scientific uh, process. All right, any theory which cannot be disproved, refuted, cannot said to be science. Everything has to be disprovable or it isn't science. Okay, so God did it is not disprovable. I mean, you just, there's nothing, so it's not science. That's where a guy like, like Stephen Jay Gould will say, look, they're just two entirely different realms. We work with what can be proven and refuted and, and proven in the lab. When you tell me God did it, I can't do anything with that. I either believe it or I don't. And so those two just have to stay apart. Now, everything he said up to that point, I'd agree, but that they should stay apart, I disagree. Because I believe that God made the physical world, and so therefore I can worship God while being a scientist. But he wants to keep them apart, but that's what he's working with there. An important characteristic, then, of a scientific theory or hypothesis is that it be falsifiable. This means that there must be some experiment or possible discovery that could prove the theory untrue. For example, Einstein's theory of relativity made predictions about the results of experiments. It had to do with distant starlight bending around the sun. These experiments could have produced results that contradicted Einstein, so the theory was, and still is, falsifiable. On the other hand, the theory that, quote, there is an invisible snore greeting this over your shoulder, end quote, I didn't write this, by the way, is not falsifiable. There is no experiment or possible evidence that could prove that invisible snorgs do not exist. So the snorg hypothesis is not scientific, okay? I mean, that's just craziness. I used to think when I was a kid that nothing behind me existed until I turned and looked at it. I told you that before. I no longer think that, though. Don't worry about me. And you can tell me it's there, but it isn't there until I look. And it's really quick, I found. As soon as I look, it's there. You know, it's, un it's unfalsifiable. It can't be proven. I told you, I think, some time ago, my mother got me out of that. She said it was arrogant and the world was here before I was born and I was too self-centered and time to move on. So she was right. <laughs> Says, I was here and you weren't, and I'm telling you, what's behind you is there, so... Eat your dinner. So that's kind of how that went. Okay, note, this has been applied to the apparent age theory that God created the universe to appear old. We know from biblical evidence that the universe is about 6,000 years old. Therefore, God created it 6,000 years ago with fossils in the ground and light on its way from distant stars so that there is no way of telling the real age of the universe simply by looking at it. This is the navel theory of Edmund Goss. Adam had no mother, so did not need a navel, but was created by God with one. That is, physical proof of connection with a non-existent mother. Similarly, at the moment of creation, the world was chock full of things that must have happened yesterday when yesterday did not exist. The hypothesis is unfalsifiable and therefore not a scientific one. Uh, it could also be made for any date in the past, like last Tuesday. Finally, it requires that God, who is alleged to speak to us through his works, should be lying to us by setting up misleading cre creation. That I deny, by the way. This seems to be rather inconsistent with biblical claims of God being the source of all truth. Now, let me tell you something. First of all, that last statement, I think, is wrong, okay? I don't think God's trying to mislead. I just think that for his own purposes, things had to seem to have been around for a while. Like, for example, if you meet somebody that is articulate and good, good at communicating in language, wouldn't you assume that they had learned the language? Wouldn't that imply a lot of time? Time it took for them to get such a grand vocabulary, right? Well, Adam had that the moment he was created. Was God trying to mislead us by doing that? No, he's not trying to mislead. It was just to his benefit or purposes to have Adam instantly fully lingual when he created him. I think that's very indicative of the fact that the universe for some reason is created as it is. And it may be, and I'm not saying this is definitely possible because I still don't always trust these, these dating techniques. But it may be that the stuff in the rocks and all that, it was there the day that Adam was created, appearing as though it were millions of years old. Again, not 
for misleading purposes, but God knows more about how things need to be than we do. And that's why, though you and I would have killed the mosquitoes, God told Noah not to do it, because we need the mosquitoes for some reason. Keep us humble, remind us we're not in the new heaven, the new earth, whatever. And so Noah, being a very obedient being, did not kill the mosquitoes. What else would you have had him kill? Come on, what would you have had him kill? Ladies, the slugs, what do you think? Snakes, moles, kill those moles, all right? Snakes, all snakes. I killed a snake the other day. That was a lot of fun. Used a shovel to do it. It was, it was kind of fun. Do what you got to do. Protect your family. I felt like a man. That was a good feeling. That was, that was a good feeling. Killing a snake. Now you're going to ask me what kind of snake it was. And when I tell you it's a black snake, you're going to tell me, those are good snakes. I tell you, no snake on my property is a good snake. All right? I'll deal with the rodents my own way, but no snake is a good snake. All right? Bottom line is when I see him, I kill him. We're not friends. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, God knows what to do. All I'm saying is on the apparent age thing, consider fully lingual Adam the day he's created. Think about that when you consider the evidence that the universe is billions of years old. That's all I'm urging you to do. So therefore, just learning about science, science cannot determine uh, if the sonnets of William Shakespeare are better than the poetry of John Milton. That's not a scientific, I mean, that's a qualitative judgment. Science cannot determine anything at all about the past. You cannot speak of, a scienti- of scientific evidence that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States. There's no experiment you could do. I mean, there are accepted tools of the trade for historians, and for them, they don't doubt that he was the 16th president of the United States. None of those things. I'm just saying that's not science. That's history. Those are different things. Science cannot be summoned to prove or disprove Jesus' miracles, including his resurrection from the dead. Science cannot prove that the Bible is the word of God. What science can do is make verifiable observations of phenomena and derive theoretical explanations for those phenomena for making future predictions based on those theories. That's it. And science cannot prove or disprove the basic assumptions of radioisotope dating techniques. Radioisotope dating is unscientific because the basic assumptions cannot be falsified. We don't know how much stuff there was in the rock a hundred years ago or a million years ago. We have no idea. You're guessing at it. You're extrapolating backward in time. Nobody knows. So it's unfalsifiable. It's a religion, friends. All right, we'll talk more about that in due time. Next week, we have a members meeting. Please come. Those members meetings are important. If you're a member of the church, member of FBC, it really is part of your covenantal responsibility to be there. Uh, I'm not saying it's any spectacularly special one. I'm just telling you we have four a year. We have one in February, we have one in, in May, we have one in August, and we have one in November. So please, if you can make it, come, but there won't be this class, and then we'll resume in due time after that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had tonight to look at the lie of evolution. I pray that you would help us to learn more, to not be intimidated by the things that scientists uh, tell us and teach us. And Father, I pray that we'd cling to your word. It really, my, my goal here is to just increase people's confidence in the Bible. That's, that's really my goal, that we would know that the Bible is the word of God, And core to that is trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins that we might have eternal life. That's really my goal here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.